you've made it to The Paul List, a daily comics analysis podcast, where every day I pick a comic and I try different modes of analysis on that comic, in dialogue with comic studies, comics journalism, and works by comics creators about how the art is done. Um, I'm Tuply. I'm on Twitter at T-W-O-P-L-A-I. Please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you're finding us. Um, on Mondays, we talk about a Marvel comic. On Tuesdays, we talk about a trade paperback from another publisher such as Image, Dark Horse, Valiant, Boom. Saturday is our super friend with DC Comics. On Wednesday, we cover the wider world of comics, web comics, um, global comics. On Thursday, we do a throwback, a classic work. Friday is our family graphic novel, and Sunday is our smaller press comic. Thanks for coming. Let's dig deep. Hello, today is Monday, August 29th, and um, on Monday we talk about a Marvel comic, and our focus today is Nighthawk number four, written by um, uh, David F. Walker, art by Ramon Villalobos, color by Tamara Bonvian, um, letter VCs Joe Caramagna from, from Marvel Comics. Uh, and it is quite a time to talk about Nighthawk number four, and um, I'll get into the whys and wherefores in a second. Um, I want to thank you for joining me today on the Paulus podcast, and um, uh, first of all, a shout out to um, Preeti and Paul at the um, O Comics podcast, which is uh, part of Panels.net. Um, Panels, a great website, which is starting, which is, it will soon become Book Riot Comics or BR Comics um, incorporated into its, I think, larger umbrella website. Um, and, um, but the, the podcast, Oh Comics, I mentioned in one of my episodes is um, a lot of fun. Um, it's insightful. Uh, and unfortunately, it's drawing to a close, um, which I, I missed that announcement at the end of their second to their penultimate episode, their second to last episode. So, um, but they gave me a, a really nice shout out on uh, their last episode, and that was just incredibly kind. So if you're over here on their recommendation, I welcome you to The Paulist, a weird podcast where one lonely person talks about comics every day. Um, I am that lonely person. I'm Paul. And uh, apologies, insert stock apology here for the sound quality. Um, I'm recording um, uh, on the run again, rather than in my uh, studio which is my basement. Uh, so we're on the uh, iPhone iPhone microphone today. Um, but talking about Nighthawk number four, I think um, some people are going to... Uh, well, let, let's, let me put it this way, I think. If you're coming over from a podcast like O Comics, then I think the, the sensitivity that um, Preeti and Paul have to issues of representation and race and... Um, and other aspects of representation and identity um, should be something that uh, you're, you're accustomed to. Um, while there may be others who are listening who um, come for other reasons, for whom the the, the topics are, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're at a place where you're just sort of like, why is it that we're always talking about these kinds of issues, representation and race and things like that, when we talk about comics? I guess my argument would be that um, comics have always engaged in racial discourse, especially in the United States, and um, since really comics' inception, you know, going as far back at least as R.F. Alcult's, um, uh, you know, uh, The Yellow Kid, uh, from which we got the name The Yellow Journalism, from which, you know, some would say newspaper comics sprung, which uh, attempted to depict the, the life and experience of people in the slums and the ghettos uh, who, you know, included a lot of um, immigrants from 
Eastern Europe and so forth and, and depicted as such, um, as well as uh, obviously other, other racial and ethnic groups. Uh, race has been um, part of comics um, because comics has always been a visual culture and the um, optics of race, um, which are never simple, of course, um, have always been um, an aspect of the way that characters are depicted, represented, or appropriated and reappropriated, uh, as well as images, aesthetics, styles. And so um, even in, uh, in, in Jeff Chang's book, Who We Be, which is a cultural history of race, he starts out talking about Maury Turner's comic strip, We Pals and the evolution and the emergence of that strip and uh, how it was taken up and the kind of racial politics that it engaged in. And so I think it's hard to talk about comics without talking about race. It, it, it's a little bit talking, it's, it's a little bit like talking about baseball without talking about race. Um, because, uh, you know, the problem with the color line, so to speak, um, I think that was Gunnar Myrtle. <laughs> um, it, it shot through American history and culture, and similarly, uh, very much so. And moreover, I, when you talk about a, a medium like comics, which is part of the broader visual culture, and I think a very specific part, one where people are imaginative and creative and producers and creators without having to be part of a big corporate arm. Um, when you talk about visual culture, especially that visual culture that's kind of popularly produced, um, you have to realize how central visual culture is to what makes, to, to, to uh, kind of what constitutes our contemporary political and cultural experience. I mean, to talk about some of the issues that have, um, you know, that we're going to address today, uh, namely things like um, the Black Lives Matter movement, things like the, um, the, uh, uh, the, the killing of um, black men and women, um, men and women of color uh, by police officers caught on camera on video and shown to the world when you talk about that you know that's an experience that um is present in our culture uh you know just as an experience that is present to our culture is witnessing a trump rally you know all of these are part of the 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 discourse that we have in this country about just race also po politics also gender and, and so forth um but all of that, you know, has always been around. <laughs> There's always been Trump-like people talking at Trump-like rallies. There's always been um, uh, black and brown people shot by police. The difference now uh, is that we, we see it. The difference now is that it's captured on, um, you know, ubiquitous cell phone cameras. Um, I happen to have taught and, and worked and lived in the community where um, Oscar Grant uh, frequented at the time that he was killed. In fact, I used to sort of commute into the same BART station that he left on the night that he was um, fatefully killed. Um, Oscar Grant being the, the young African-American man who was killed by BART police that was depicted in Ryan Coogler's film um, Fruitvale Station. If you haven't seen that, that's uh, stop listening to this podcast now and go watch Fruitvale Station. Um, if, Creed, if you liked Creed, if you're interested in Black Panther, or if you're just a human, go watch Fruitvale Station. Uh, it will touch you to your heart and your nerves. But Oscar Grant was, um, you know, when when it happened, I think many of us felt like, yes, this is something that we see and experience and our hearts ache for in our community. But the fact that, you know, people on the BART train pulled out their cameras and captured it just, I think, exemplifies why this this is in our conversation now, why this is undeniably part of our cultural experience about which we have to talk about it and, and, and talking about it really means that um, the medium of comics is not going to be um, caged off, blocked off 
from talking about it, especially such a visual medium. A visual medium that um, is gloriously, by the way, um, to get to the comic book, uh, gloriously presented to us with an awesome Dennis Cowan and Bill Sienkiewicz cover, by the way, uh, and Chris Sotomayor, I should mention. Uh, shout out to that. That cover is beautiful. Um, but I think a part of this book has been um, Nighthawk number four, a uh, Nighthawk actually has been the the awesome uh, diversity of its creative team. You have David F. Walker, who's an African American writer, who's been um, outspoken creatively and also you know publicly on Twitter and things like that and in interviews about writing from the su- subject position, the subjectivity of an African American, um, and, and his experiences and perspectives. Um, wrote the Shaft series, miniseries, wrote Cyborg, um, now doing more work at Marvel. Um, And then the artist is Ramon Villalobos, who is um, straight out of Stockton, California, um, who has a really interesting uh, artistic style that I want to talk about, too. Um, And then the colorist as well, Tamara Bonvian, I think is is how her name is is pronounced. Um, A trans woman who uh who I think has brought brought that sort of contemporary color sensibility of uh you know people like uh, Matt Hollingsworth and and Jordi Belair and so on to this book uh, to all her books that she's done including Rat Queens and stuff like that so you know the, the entire creative team I think reflects a kind of diversity that uh, sometimes Marvel has been at the forefront of sometimes Marvel has been critiqued for lacking uh you know all part of the discourse all important um you know, to, uh, the book, uh, oh, and I, sh- I should probably mention, one of the reasons the book is talk- talked about right now so much, uh, I think Joseph Illich talked about having a piece on it coming soon on, on CBR, his column, I think, um, and a uh, whole lot of stuff on Twitter um, from Mr. Walker, from Mr. Villalobos, and stuff like that, um, is that it's just been canceled. <laughs> is that low print, uh, low sales has um, led Marvel to announce its cancellation. Um, I think after issue seven or nine or something like that, which is a shame. It's a book that um, I I, uh, pre-ordered and jumped on early uh, because of the creative team, not knowing too much, to be honest, about Nighthawk, Um, having read some Squadron Supreme from back in the day um, uh, and and knowing that they were doing a Hyperion book and knowing that they were doing a Nighthawk book. But when I saw the creative team on it, when I saw Walker and Villalobos, I was like, in and so I've been, you know, I've been getting the issues. I actually haven't gotten four in the mail. I had to get this one digitally. Um, uh, but but the first three, actually the first three, I got, I pre-ordered and I also picked up at the comic shop. As sometimes I go to the comic shop and I buy a book just to let the comic shops know that um, even though I might own this digitally, even though I might have ordered this by mail, I am going to support this book. And uh, and that's how I'm wasting away my my daughter's college saving funds on comic books but um i actually went into a shop uh normally i go to the escapist in berkeley which is um an awesome store shout out to them uh but uh, i went into a shop and it was a little bit more in the suburbs i try to kind of whenever i'm in a new place um if i have some free time which is not often i will stop in at a comic shop and just check it out and i and i went to the shop and store manager store owner seemed uh nice enough uh, you know, chit-chatted with customers. Um, but I walked up with a pile of comics, including some of his, um, some of their sort of like packs of, you know, old, old runs that are collected and stuff like that. And I had Nighthawk <laughs> one and three, another copy of them for me, um, in my pile. And he, he took a look at him, took a look at me and, and I, f- maybe I'm too sensitive, but, uh, I, I think a little sneer crept across his face. 
Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm over reading it or, um, or, or whatever, but I don't know. It, it was a little, a little cold in exchange <laughs> after that, just by my attempts to be friendly. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the reaction to Nighthawk has been, I think, uh, applause and, and cheers and, um, and, and gratitude for many, many readers. Um, and for others, um, the opening scene, which was a, a kind of, you know, fantasy fulfillment scene of um, Nighthawk coming in and kicking, kicking butt and, and taking names and lives of, of some white racists. Um, well, I guess I'd put it this way. I think there's a lot of people who, when they hear about a comic book taking on racism, or when you know, like they, I've heard the response like, "Oh, it's it's about it's about race." I can I can get behind that, but once the once they open it up and read and they say, "Oh, they're killing white people," they'll say, "No, I'm out." <laughs> and I, I I don't know. I'm not trying to antagonize anybody, but I I feel like we need to be introspective about that. Why we can accept um, uh, uh, the Punisher, you know, marching into a room and slaughtering a room full of you know stereotyped uh, Italian mobsters and and yet we have a problem with um with nighthawk killing a, a bunch of white racists killing i think there's killing in the beginning um and, and and you know i i rush in to say that i think that there is some self-questioning in the book because there's there's some skepticism of it's not just sort of a power fantasy of you know a, a black you know superhero a black vigilante being able to come in and 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 kill, um, kill for revenge, kill for uh, some some outworking of sense of being oppressed or uh, or uh, some uh, un, unguided and unregulated <laughs> um, uh, revenge. You know, there, there's this isn't Quentin Tarantino. Um, this isn't Django. No, that's not fair. I think, but anyway, um, the, because our, our our you know one of our characters in this configuration of characters that Walker and Villalobos introduce is this serial killer who's taking what seems to be revenge, right? And and some of the book is about how near. I'm going to spoil the book, by the way. Go read the books. Um, go pick them up. However, you can pick them up, and then come back to to the rest of this conversation. But there's a, a whole lot about how near the character, you know, Nighthawk and Revelator are to each other. Revelator being the serial killer who, whose pattern of killing seems to be, um, uh, you know, to take, take the lives brutally of those who, um, who are, are somehow involved in, in the murder of African-American, African-American people. And so, um, you know, and so there's some, some question here. I think there's some thematic things about the idea of the serial killer, the revelator, something yet to be revealed. And I, and I think that's something that we're still looking forward to at the end of the arc. What is it that that is being revealed um, about this character who's about the, you know, the summation of an inner core of vengeance and violence? I mean, I think the... Um, the 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 folks in Dallas, uh, you know, who were killed, the police officers in Dallas who were killed by um, by somebody who uh, was a let's say a um, a splinter <laughs> splinter ideology of the Black Lives Matter movement. No, I, I think he, I should we should utterly disassociate those. But um, but uh, you know the perspective that um, decides that the um, you know the the way of violence, let's say is the way of, of retribution. And I think, 
you know, the revelator is there to say that's not what Nighthawk is, but there's also a whole lot of tangling with are we quite on this thin line between love and hate? You know, are we on this thin line between justice and, and injustice? Um, but you see, because of all this, Nighthawk working through the range of feelings from justice to vengeance and that that spectrum or, or from, from the desire to disarm, you know, to the desire to protect, which is also a, a very thin line. And... Um, and then, of course, there's this awesome character, Tilda, who is um, sort of sort of like Oracle, but <laughs> but not um, who is just dying not to be sidelined, um, not to be a, a you know, a, an overseer on the computer or a, na- a nanny or something like that, pushing against being boxed into that role. And she's got great politics. She's got great street smarts. She really wants to be out there. I think that's something that. Um, you know, by the end of this issue, we know that the other shoe is going to drop as far as that narrative and as far as the placement of a female character in um, in this book that is very much, I think, taking on the questions of the broader culture, the politics and the activism of our times. And I think it's um, it's awesome. It's courageous. It's um, exciting that it's being taken on. Um, but I, again, I think there are people who have objections to uh, even even I think people who are well-meaning and sympathetic um, to the notion of um, you know being um, socially transformative or introspective about the role of of policing and the threat of um, you know that that um, young black men and women and uh, people of color experience every day in feeling as if the police uh, who ought to be there to serve and protect are a threat. Um, because you you never know, uh, you never know if you're pulled over for a broken tail light, whether you'll make it out of that encounter, um, and so um, you know I, I guess a, a recent experience that comes to mind is that I have a, a friend who who is actually a minister who went out with other ministers um, who've been involved in the movement to to Ferguson. Um, they took a trip to Ferguson to um, to talk to movement leaders there, and I think that um, you know we still sort of see Ferguson represented in the mainstream media as, as kind of an inciting incident and an inciting place. But, um, but really sometimes what gets ignored is that it's actually an organizing center, you know, um, it's a, it's a, a collect collecting place, uh, a meeting place of people who have been active in the black lives matter movement, uh, a movement, which by the way, um, uh, I heard a recent comics alternative interview with, um, Andrew Aiden, Aiden, um, and Nate Powell about March. And one of the things that I didn't talk about is the way that um, John Lewis and, uh, and his goal were, was to tell the story of the civil rights movement, not in a manner as to say to today's contemporary activists, you must do exactly as we did, but to really spark the imaginative fire of what can you do? What can we do? And what are the implications of what we do? And what are the complexities of what we do when we try to be active for justice? And I think that um, uh, the um, the the Black Lives Matter movement looks different from the what we want, you know, uh, what what we may want things to look like if we are stuck in the past, you know, if we're saying like, oh, we can ennoble the people who sat in at lunch counters, but you know what these folks are doing is disruptive, um, or maybe even some would say, as I've heard, dangerous. Um, anyway, I was talking to my friend who, 
who had gone to Ferguson and we had this really inspiring conversation as he talked, as he related to talking to different activist leaders and uh, women and men who, who were on the forefront of organizing. And I, I tried to pose this gently, but I asked the dumb question that I think has to be asked, which is, you know, what are the, how are the, what are the policy demands that are shape, shaping out of the movement? And my friend, I think very wisely gave two responses, which the first of which was, yes, there are policy demands. There are, there's a sense of what the movement is organizing toward and asking for. And um, in conversation with, you know, police departments and in conversation with policymakers, these are the things that the, the movement leaders, the movement organizers want to. And, and they may not be univocal about it. They may not be necessarily on the same page about it, but they have. Um, an increasing sense of how you engage politically um, to Ray McKesson running for mayor, for instance, you know, these are, these are things that spring out of a movement. Um, But, but the second answer that he gave is that in some ways, putting the burden on the movement to say, you have to come up with the policy to change this, to fix this, you have to tell us what you want to see differently, is can be a way of, of, writing off the movement it can be a way of saying oh this is a bunch of angry radicals and you know i think similar things were said of the occupy movement you know people were annoyed at these um crunchy granola hipsters um you know sleeping on the streets without any clear um sense of you know oh if you want to change something then you go to wall street and change it uh i think that that critique is has some validity, but also is sometimes trotted out as a way to sort of dismiss ourselves from responsibility um, or to dismiss the the burden and the call of the movement because, you know, a part of the movement, as my friend was describing, is just a, you don't have to have the answers and you don't have to, uh, uh, you know, come up with the policy. You don't have to change the, you don't have to have the clear 12 steps to get this institution or the system different because what you see isn't an injustice and when you see that injustice you speak out when you feel your life threatened you speak out when you see your brothers and sisters um uh you know um being being wronged and their lives being taken and people living in fear you speak out you speak out and you leave the uh details to when the details matter but for now sometimes you know, all that needs to be heard is that fact of Black Lives Mattering. Um, and, you know, I, I think what um, what we may do is mischaracterize Nighthawk number four as sort of just another um, inchoate cultural expression of anger. Uh, it is that, but that, but, but that is not any reason for us to discount the... Um, I think the the substance of what it's showing us, you know, and um, you know, I think it's it's showing some some of the questions and challenges that are within people w- within communities who are you know thinking about these issues of police violence, but it doesn't necessarily come down with a firm answer, and it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to come down with a firm answer of whether or not violence is ever necessary in self defense. It doesn't have to come down with an answer of. You know, this question of movements and voices for movements being male or, or female or whether female voices are sidelined because they don't sound like King and, and X. Um, uh, you know, it doesn't have to 
suppose that we're confused about violence or nonviolence. Nighthawk has a seems to have a very clear moral code where violence or killing or that Batman line where that that Batman never crosses or whatever um, is contextual, and that's not wrong. You know, it's not wrong to decide about violence contextually, especially in the face of a criminal justice system that um, seems to have all of its context upside down and backwards. Um, And I think the book is also challenging and asking questions about whether this movement uh, is, or whether the, not this movement, whether um, the the response to police violence against um, black and brown people that is being, you know, uh, uh, kind of splashed all over uh, the headlines and and our social media where we're watching this and witnessing this experience, whether that um, leads to a bunch of lone wolf, um, some would say extremist responses, or whether there is an organized force that's involved, uh, whether we're talking about rioters or whether we're talking about, um, uh, you know, a, a, a political and civic movement. Um, I think that ultimately what it comes down to and what this book comes down to is that the, that, you know, we're kind of in a, in an ideological battle over how we conceptualize a criminal, uh, how we conceptualize criminalization. And I think that's the, um, stark contrast, you know, of perspectives, right? Some people, um, for some people, a criminal always looks like this and a, and a, and a, an authority figure always wears this color and badge. And for others, uh, you know, that doesn't jive with, with their, their reality or the things that they see. And whether or not uh, uh, people with the, the, wearing the color and the uniform and the badge will ever be held accountable um, for crime. And whether or not people who are um, not committing any crimes or at least uh, any crimes that um, merit the punishment of, of having their life taken, whether they will continually to continue to be criminalized in a way that um, uh, propels and exacerbates all of these problems. Uh, I think that's part of what Nighthawk is about. To get into the book a little bit more, <laughs> um, and I hope it's clear that I'm not trying to talk politics, use Nighthawk as an excuse to talk politics. I think Nighthawk is a book that challenges us to talk politics, that is talking politics. But to get into the book a little bit more, I think I've really... Um, enjoyed uh, uh, Ramon Villalobos's art on this. Uh, I remember um, when he uh, first started kind of appearing on the scene, and this is before he drew the um, E is for Extinction um, uh, series that was part of the uh, Secret Wars um, stuff and, and all that kind of stuff. This is, I think, when he'd done just a few single issues, but I listened to an interview with him, and he sounded like an interesting young man who uh, drew really cool shoes and <laughs> had a, a certain style. And uh, I remember listening to the interview before I actually saw any of his artwork. I think it was on this uh, the We Talk Comics podcast with Jim Biscardi that I first um, heard heard about him and heard him. And uh, was kind of, you know, quietly excited by the fact that he was a, a young man who was an artist who was emerging from the world of, I don't know, Tumblr or DeviantArt or whatever, kind of online posting their art, um, really kind of from the, from, the, uh, from the grassroots, so to speak. Um, and that he, had, you know, I kind of have a certain picture in my head of what a Tumblr-inspired artist is. And, um, and it's not one who's necessarily um, draw, drawing from the influences that he talked about drawing from. And so, so excited to see his work saw some of his work online. I thought this is 
weird looking. <laughs> just the way that it should be weird looking. Just the way that I think weird looking was. And I got to say that um, he he often mentions the inspiration, and, and you'll see it in his work, of an artist like Frank Quitely. Um, or that general school. Uh, school is not the right word because it's not as if it's a formal discipline. In fact, um, Quitely often talks about not being formally trained in comics. But, but you know, your Quitelys and your uh, Chris Burnham's, your Nick Batara's and, and folks like that. And you could see uh, Ramon being in that style to some extent. And I, and I, I've always felt that style was very weird for me, uh, very off center for me in, in, in my um, Todd McFarlane slash manga slash, um, you know, Walt Kelly trained sensibilities about art. But I think that it was uncomfortable and strange for me in a way that it ought to be in a way in the way that was meant to be that it should be. And I think when I um, when I read more quietly, uh, when I looked at All Star Superman, for instance, and I could see the brilliance in it, I um, I was more ready to I think attribute the 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 qualities that I saw in those artists to what what um, Ramon Villalobos was doing. Um, there's aspects of his style that are are more like a lot like those artists, um, and influenced, of course, you know, quietly influenced by um, by Mobius or 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 Jean Girard as uh his 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 i think birth his given name is um mobius is is sort of the artist the version of the artist that does the sort of uh uh, uh you know fantasy elements that creates the the large worlds um this is i think a, a little bit more in the jeff darrow vein of um you know robots and um giant uh, alien creatures that are the size of cities and things like that and and uh cool looking spaceships and stuff like that Girard being more of the version of that same artist who um does the realistic street scene stuff and i've always felt like what's interesting about quietly is that he's always been kind of a to me um this master of the subtlety of a very natural form uh his characters have this way of being either very relaxed you know the you know i just think of many images in all-star superman where he's he's standing tall and it's as if every um muscle that's flexing in his spine and and back have um an intention of either being uh stiff as needed or uh, more often uh you know uh, relaxed and 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 sort of um organic and in the place and in the moment and and also quietly is 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 kind of a master especially in his in you know in these latter years of staging and of incredible storytelling uh, he tells a story i think it's i think i read it on um on the beat uh, the comics beat website where um, Quietly's interviewed and he he describes once sending in his work and and being quite proud of his work at the time and getting feedback from an editor that you know that like the art was really good looking but that there was something missing in the storytelling and 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 then Quietly talks about being given some pointers and that being kind of a watershed moment in, in his in his art where he went from just a style to being a storyteller. Um, Ramon, I think, is in a stage where he is evolving from a style to a storyteller. And there are still parts where um, I feel like he's still in development where, you know, I can't remember, but earlier in this series, I can't remember which issue, but there's two panels in sequence where Tilda is in almost the exact same pose. And and it seems not necessarily purposeful it just sort of seems like it was easier to draw her in the same pose with slightly but slightly different and I, I i couldn't make rhyme or reason of why 
they why they looked so alike except for convenience uh in contrast actually to um page two of this book where there's actually this sort of you know i think it's a nine panel grid that is the minimal contrast that uh, panels that are purposeful you know in, in showing the that um rich developer and his his uh fit his reaction um but i think you know again all of the great ramon things are here the things that are like um quietly and then you know and and like uh mobius like darrow the sort of stippling the dots the dots that um have that certain effect the sort of roundness and 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 almost um bulbous character of of um of of human beings i think what um to me to my eyes what ramon hasn't quite gotten that quietly does so well is is the relaxed figure you know you have uh uh you know um figures it's, you know when when nighthawk is standing on a rooftop for instance his shoes look gorgeous uh, but they don't seem resting on the pavement or um atilda always seems taught um something in the muscles and in the shoulders that st- that sort of the shoulders ha- don't communicate the same um uh acting that i think uh quietly has gotten to the level of but if that's a critique all it is saying is that Ramon Villalobos hasn't yet achieved the level of the great, maybe the greatest comics artist of our of our times. So it's not a rough critique. I I, I want to jump. I want to leave the critique area quickly and just to say how much I enjoy the art. In fact, I think what's so cool about it that works so well with this narrative is that that quality that comes from a lot of um, you know Bede artists that runs through the the veins of of quietly and of of your your burnhams and your pataras is this is this um uh well when when mobius used it to draw weird creatures and robots and you know spaceships uh it it sort of had this fantasy this fantastic quality this as i said this like sort of alien weirdness that was very very mesmerizing even if it didn't attract somebody like me at first you'd have to read it it would sort of draw you in and i think this is what quietly does to me and then it would sort of like intoxicate you and i feel like um what what ramon has done is taken that quality that to me again has a lot to do with dots and stippling and and sort of bulbous quality and and brought it into an urban setting uh you know where once like the intricate detail was reserved for um like cities and and uh you know um exotic looking guns it's now brought into the shoelaces you know and guns actually <laughs> you know it's brought into aspects of the urban landscape it's brought into the um you know the cars and the the warehouse scene and all that kind of stuff and meanwhile that that thing where human faces are lumpy and and um and sort of uh you know uh bulbous is the word i keep coming to but you know it, ha- it is kind of brought in this this kind of uh, weirdness and intensity brought into the humans and in fact even that thing that i was critiquing earlier that the characters always seem a little bit taut a little bit um not not quite relaxed uh whether on purpose or not actually adds to the quality of this book um that's heightened by bonvion's colors that there is this fever pitch going on that there's this tightness going on that uh when you when you watch a, a, a movie like fruitvale station for instance uh the and or creed or whatever the characters may be relaxed michael b jordan may be relaxed but there's always a certain tension that you don't escape because that's the world that you live in and your relaxation is only um some attempt 
to moderate that feeling that you got. Um, yeah. So love via Lobos's art. I should credit also um, Murata who did issue three and I think is doing some of the upcoming issues. Much of the same quality. Not as much weirdness as Ramon, uh, but I think hopefully I've made the point that I think it's a it's a it's a very uh, astute choice to bring that kind of that kind of weirdness into the urban setting uh, because I think the the sense of all of this being uh, beautiful but not pretty, um, uh, not strange but like almost a kind of routinized kind of strangeness, a kind of, uh, as I said, tension in the air that isn't uh, like something new, but it's something that we've come to grow into our inner parts, this kind of organic, organic um, uh, uh, tautness, Uh, not to mention some butt kicking action, (laughs) which, um, you know, I think Ramon's art has been uh, displaying a tight focus on on bodies, a tight focus on faces, a tight focus on 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 muscles extending, and it, and it really kind of works for the fight scenes that are in this this issue. Um, all of it kind of you know uh, leading up to that sixteen panel sequence on page eleven, and I and I got to say to come back to the politics of how important these visual representations are, including of violence, because the the visual representation of violence is exactly what has instigated um, this movement, and it's not a oh why are they splashing violence all over the pages uh, of our Facebook or whatever it's or, or the news it's 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 um, how are we now capturing different perspectives of this violence? Um, there's this famous academic essay by a, um, he's an anthropologist named Charles Goodwin called Professional Vision. And he writes about how it is that during the Rodney King trials, what you could patently see on video that was all over the country as police beating up Rodney King could be constructed by the witness, the you know uh, expert testimony, the expert eyewitness testimony of a... Um, you know, an analyst who basically said, oh, you see that flinch right there? That is a is, is a signal to the police officer that somebody is resisting arrest and therefore they have to, um, you know, protect themselves and um, and subdue the, 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 the criminal. And so what to what to any sort of untrained, quote unquote, untrained eye is an obvious like um, abuse of power. You know, the, the, the beating up of a black man. Uh, becomes through a quote-unquote trained professional vision uh, a constructed you know point of view where the the optics can lead somebody to conclude or a jury to conclude oh nothing no harm done here just people doing their jobs and so to draw constructions or to um, capture with multiple cameras the um, the 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 sort of the way that every video can be a a different construction you know what's obvious and clear to the naked human eye um is a political act and i think the 16 panels of page 11 are as political an act of of representing violence as um as there is in comics um yeah all of this in this issue mounting to the last seven pages where the revelator is turning the tables um where tilda figures it out you know um and nighthawk gets taken down and out um there's the image of course where he's earlier where he's shot in the back and i think that small panel is all too familiar an image um for for you know as we've as we've watched um people being shot in the back and um 
you know, and then there's a sort of repetition of the same scene. Again, back to what I was saying about the multiple vantage. If you can't tell, I, I didn't hyper prepare for this podcast. I'm just flipping through the pages to talk about these pages. But, you know, there's this repetition of one of the birds is singing to you right now. Someone is watching you. That is such a just a a choice line to repeat page after page and then to have it page after page to to be at different perspectives and vantage points of the story you know the vantage point of the serial killer the vantage point of uh of nighthawk the vantage point of tilda the vantage point of the the um i don't know the 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 broader story as it as it goes on that line one of the birds is singing to you right now someone is watching you i mean you could just i could just sit here for another 15 minutes talking about the poetry and and um resonances the um illusions of that line but it's repeated to show that there are multiple points of view involved and you get a sense of the multiple camera angles that cameras everywhere kind of represents giving different takes on the scene and 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 the sort of simultaneity of all these different perspectives and experiences of the moment that that lead to the complicated interpretations of all that's happening um ultimately as i said we're we're kind of on a cliffhanger here and i'm eager to see how this arc ends and what comes of tilda uh, what comes of nighthawk what comes of the revelator um but i think suffice it to say as i've jumped leaped over my time limit here that um, I think Nighthawk Four is, is engaging in important politics. So another thing to watch, I think, is the is the response. I'm eager to see um, what Joseph Illich has to say in his column. I'm eager to see what uh, what people talk about as they talk about the cancellation of this book. You know, and there's some back and forth on Twitter that I saw about whether or not. Um, you know, uh, customers are to blame for this awesome book going away, or whether Marvel's to blame, or whatever. Or, uh, I think, um, I think probably more valuable from my point of view for us to talk up what it is that this book is um, inviting us to talk and think about, um, especially those of us who are not um, black, uh, especially those of us who are. Um, uh, wanting just to be thoughtful readers of comics that, you know, I think Walker and Villalobos and company have laid out for us um, important conversation, invited us to it as a comics reading community. And that's something that um, I'm grateful to them for letting us take up. All right. Well, your feedback is is always welcome. I hope that it will be polite. Um, I, I always aim for polite uh, discourse here. Um, of course, there are times when we need to put politeness aside and get real. And um, you can get real with me at Tuply on Twitter, T-W-O-P-L-A-I. Uh, you can email me at Tuply at gmail.com. Um, and I think that um, uh, I, I I hate that um, this podcast is a monologue. It's a fact. It's a reality I have to deal with uh, <laughs> in the busyness of my life. But I just want to, again, thank... Um, all of the people who have supported me being able to do this podcast, um, including folks at Multiversity like Mike and Greg, and and folks at Comics Alternative like um, like Derek and Andy, um, and then and thank um, uh, Paul and Preeti for what they did with their podcast. Um, if I as I started off kind of saying, comics is part of our cultural, political, uh, and racial discourse, and um, I think uh, that's why it's I don't know a few folks sitting around talking comics is has the possibility has the potentials also to be part of that discourse even if it even if the conversation opts not to talk about these issues as they're presented 
uh, or to sweep them under the rug. Um, but, but I think even more powerfully when we try to take them up together. So I have a lot to learn. Um, I hate that it's a monologue. I thank you. Somebody uh, put a review up on iTunes too. And I, that's, it was just so kind. Um, and what Paul and Preeti said is so kind and the feedback many of you have given just really kind, um, uh, encourages me to do this. Um, really there's, this is not about money. It's about passion. It's about the community and the conversation and, um, I'm stimulated and I'm growing by it. So thank you. And, uh, let's keep reading.